Dave Crable is well known in the brass community for his pranks and, although I tried, even I wasn't able to escape some of his jokes. So enjoy this bonus room with one of the world's greatest pranksters, the one and only Dave Crable. Well, when you were in San Francisco, you had some of your most famous pranks, and I think a number of them involved Mark Lawrence. And uh, maybe you'd like to talk about the the two that I think are the best. One was where you actually got Mark Lawrence, and that was for his 40th birthday party. And then the other was um, when you accused him or the brass section in general of playing too loud. Yeah. Mark and I had a lot of fun, and we were colleagues. And Mark and I would ski uh, together. We'd we'd go up Monday morning on our day off and ski and come back the same day. And I got the idea of skiing in tails. I don't know why I did. Mark thought it was a good idea. So we put on our tails and went skiing at Squaw Valley in Tahoe. (laughs) And people were quite amazed at these two guys. (laughs) skiing in full dress tails, you know, they would ask us, uh, what's going on? Uh, Why are you guys doing this? And I said, well, there's going to be a wedding at lift three or whatever it was. My friend here is getting married and I'm, I'm the preacher and I'm going (laughs) to, and it's going to be at one o'clock and you're all invited. So come on up to lift three and we're going to have this wedding. (laughs) So at one o'clock, we're down at the bottom of the hill looking up and there's all these people standing around waiting for the wedding, you know. So later on when we're skiing, people would say, well, what happened to the wedding? And I said, well, the bride got cold feet. Okay. So That's supposed to be a joke. Uh, yeah, I got it. I got it. Don't give up your day job. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. No, Mark and I, well, Mark got a new sports car, Alfa Romero, and he was very proud of it. He and I drove down to rehearsal in it, and I told everybody, and no, I'm down to a concert in it, and I told everybody, you know, Mark's really proud of this car. He wants everybody to come out and take a look of it, look at it after the concert. So meantime, at the intermission, I went on jacked up one of the wheels. <laughs> so that we all got out there and I got in the car and Mark got in the car. They're all standing around admiring this new sports car. And Mark put it in gear and nothing happened. <laughs> it's broken. <laughs> anyway, he knew he knew what was happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, Mark had a, a 40th birthday party, and Mark, being a very elegant kind of person, decided to throw a party for all his friends in the park in Marin County at Larkspur, and he had it catered. So we all showed up. Must have been quite a few people there, 60 or, or so. We showed up for this party, whatever it was, 2 o'clock in the afternoon or something. The caterer was there beginning to organize this wonderful, elegant display of food that Mark had provided for everybody. But in the meantime, the day before, I went to the Larkspur Police Department, and I said, is there anybody here who'd like to do a practical joke? And the policeman practically bought me, sure, yeah, we're into it, let's go. So I told him about this picnic party, and can you show up at the appropriate time and ask for his permit and tell him he has to leave? with all these people there and the caterer there. So sure enough, in the middle of getting ready to serve this elegant meal, cop car pulls up and these two guys get out with all the stuff hanging on their belts and they walk over and say, who's in charge here? Mark said, I am. He says, well, sir, you don't have a permit to be here. You're gonna have to leave. <laughs> Mark turns to ash and in the meantime we're behind a tree filming him, you know? Oh, you have that on film? Yeah, somewhere. and so. He turns to Ashen, poor guy. 
he's arguing with the guy and he says, well, no, there's another group coming in here and they have a permit and we don't, we can't find your permit. You don't have one. You're going to have to vacate the area. <laughs> so you better come over to the car and we'll talk about it. He reluctantly walks over to the police car and uh, he says, well, you better get in the back here. And he got in the back and then the cop handed him this cane with a birthday note on it from me and several other people saying that uh, it was a practical joke and he didn't have to leave. <laughs> well, he did, he did retaliate. His best retaliation was after a horn audition. I came home after listening to 30 or 35 players put their life streams on that stage for five minutes. You know, you just feel so much anguish for these people. They're, they've worked and, and struggled and had dreams of playing in an orchestra and they go out on stage and we have to judge them and we have to see if there's anybody there that we want to join our section. Anyway, auditioning is hard. It's hard for the auditioners, but it's also hard, I think, for the committees that have to hear these people and hear them you're you're just looking for something special, you know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I came home and I was very sort of, I would say, burned out from the audition. And first thing I did was fix myself a big drink. And then the phone rings and it's this guy that wants to know about his audition and why he didn't wasn't passed on to the finals. And I said, well, okay, uh, let me get my notes. I have my notes there. I got them and. I said, what was your number or whatever it was, H or something? I look at my notes and I say, well, first I sort of chatted this guy up a little bit. I said, well, where'd you come from? And he said, well, I'm in St. Louis. I said, well, did you study with Pandoppi? Oh, yeah, I studied with Pandoppi. And he had all the right answers and so on. So anyway, I looked at my notes and it was like in big letters, this person plays extremely sharp all the time. So he did play with the piano, um, some Mozart or something, and he was sharp, just sharp, and he never even came close to getting to the pitch. So it was just amazing. So I said, well, my notes say you played sharp. You played sharp the whole time, and you never came down to the pitch of the piano. And the guy says, well, I never play sharp. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm sorry. I mean, you asked for my comments. This is what I have written. I, I uh, I have to tell you the truth. The reason you weren't passed on to the finals is because you played sharp. He says, well, your ears are because I never played sharp. <laughs> I said, well, <laughs> I, I tried to get through to this guy, and the more therapy I tried to give him about his sharpness, <laughs> the more belligerent he became. And I listened to this guy, and finally something was familiar there, and I listened a little closer, and I realized it was Mark. Mark had been at the audition, too, and he had called me up, and he had deliberately tried to get me to hang up on him, and the whole time I'm trying to give him therapy. And the cruder he got, the more therapy I gave him. And finally, the whole thing, he was coming over for dinner that night, too, and we just couldn't quit laughing. He really got me on that one. I think maybe that's one of the best practical jokes that's ever been played on, on me. I, I remember you and I were on a plane one time with, on a Summit Brass tour where you got me, and we were laughing, I think, for about 30 minutes straight, we, where we just couldn't stop. Well, <laughs> well, that was one of the meanest 
I've always been kind of mean to you, and you've been so understanding. <laughs> and I don't know why you treat me so well, because I've always been mean to you as far as my practical jokes are concerned with you. I remember one time at Summit Brass where I'm conducting, and there was this little solo in the uh, Albinoni that David Hickman oh, always played. Oh, I remember played. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. David Hickman always played, and he wasn't playing that that summer. And so the solo fell in your hands. And David Hickman, if you know him, and if you know his trumpet playing, he has this most incredible, liquid, beautiful sound in the middle right And fantastic vibrato. Yeah, just perfect. Anyway, so he always played this wonderful little cadenza solo, and he wasn't playing silver, so Tony had to play it. So Tony, my dear friend Tony, was very worried about it. So he practiced and practiced and sort of very diligently was prepared for the solo, but somehow he had prepared it in the wrong key. Do you remember what key you were in? Um, it had to do with the B flat trumpet and the C trumpet, but I don't, I don't remember that. But I thought it was that the trombones deliberately. No, whatever. Wrong. Here's what happened, and you probably forgot it. We got to the cadenza and we stopped, and you started playing, and it's a whole step off. So everybody said, she, everybody, the whole, I stopped the whole thing. Everybody said, God, Tony, can't you do this? You know, I mean, you know, everybody's piling on you, making jokes and so on. So we did it again, but I had gone over to the trombone section. And I said, now when you play this chord, play it in this key. So <laughs> we got to this section, this thing again, and the trombone played their chords, their chord. And then you played your solo in the right key, but the trombones played the chord in the wrong key. And so you sounded wrong again. This was a wonderful practical joke. So then the whole group piled on, Tony, oh, Tony, can't you do anything right? Come on, you know, it was really fun. What I remember was normally when Summit Brass would play, at the end of, at the, end of the last piece, we'd get the standing ovation and would have to come out for a couple of solo bows and then do a couple of encores. But we played in some place in the Midwest, and I forget where it was, where the audience was totally not into it, and we barely made it off stage, walking off stage <laughs> before they stopped applauding. And you were behind me as we were walking off stage. And actually, this was a pretty good spontaneous comment. I said, this audience rem <laughs> reminds me of my sex life, um, polite applause and no encore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the great lines of all time. I've used it many times. That's kind of like the line that Wes Jacobs, the tuba player in Detroit, told me after he'd retired. And I said, well, how's retirement? He says, well, it's it's good. He says, you know, I had a wonderful career. I I only missed seven notes in my whole career. And I was sort of, really, seven notes? Wow, that's amazing. And he says, yeah, some A's, some B's, some C's, some D's. <laughs> anyway... Yes, we're on a summit tour and we're flying southwest and you find your own seating in southwest and Tony and I sat down in a little section. Tony had the, the window seat and there was a vacant seat between us and I had the aisle seat and we were sort of in the front of the plane and I hadn't seen Tony for quite a while and Tony, I consider Tony a best friend and so Tony had just recently, I think, been married and had a child and so I was anxious to catch up so I said to Tony very, uh, how should I say, sincerely, Tony, how's your life in Germany? Tell me about what's going on with your 
marriage and your kids and, you know, all this, you know. Tony got very excited about talking about his <laughs> his life. <laughs> he starts telling me all these personal things and I reach in my <laughs> I reach in my bag and I pull out a set of earplugs. <laughs> and I very meticulously put the earplugs in there. Tony's still talking. He's he sees me with the earplugs, but it doesn't phase him. He's just leaning over closer. Yeah, if I remember I started, I started talking louder. <laughs> Which is really embarrassing. Yes, that's right. Talking a lot. So and then I reached in my bag and I got out a book. And I opened a book and I started to read. And Tony's still telling me the story. And I'm sitting there reading a book with my earplugs in. Tony's still talking about his life in Germany. And he finally realizes what's going on. And it was a mean joke. It was really mean, but it was funny. And we started to laugh and we laughed and we laughed and we got the whole plane laughing when we told them what we had done. It was, it was really, although it was mean, it was really funny. Uh, that was great. Yeah. I have great, great feelings about that. Well, one thing we haven't talked about actually is your teaching and you've taught for many, many years. Um, one of the things we talked about earlier was your concept of creative non-caring and you not your creative, not caring, not caring. Yeah. And, and did you try to, to give that to your students, or what were your basic ideas about teaching? Well, that was my survival technique that I learned early on in playing and performing, that you can't perform if you're worried about what you just did or what you're just going to do. And so you have to creatively not care and be in the present moment. And actually, it's sort of a a, a way to do with nerves and i use it with students if i had students that were tense and and worried about making mistakes worried about making the right impression in other words nervous and so you have to encourage them to not care to actually be willing to miss notes and and take chances in order to get better do you think that students today are different from students when you first started to teach Oh, I, I'm sure that's true. Miles of different difference in that the quality of the talent, the amazing techniques and the amazing abilities of the students now, when I first started in the late 50s, this wasn't, I mean, the whole, the whole world of orchestra playing, I, I'm sure, has just gone up. I, I mean, everybody that plays in a major orchestra is overqualified. Mm -hmm. For sure. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that's the danger if you're bored with what you're doing. I, I was never really bored because I was a principal horn player and there was always something to worry about. I often think of the uh, violin section where two players are playing off one stand of music. I, I'm here in heaven playing this wonderful music and I'm getting to play my violin. So, and the other person is next to him is, is playing the same music, the same part. The same notes is say, is thinking, I hate this job. I should be a soloist, or I sh should be in a famous string quartet, and uh, and this is a very negative approach. So uh, I mean, we have to be conscious of that and monitor that. I mean, it, there's there's no way we can survive and be positive in our career if we're hating what we're doing. Yeah, for sure. Do you, do you think in an orchestra today, if that's a metaphor 
for today's symphony orchestra, at least in the United States, do you think more players in the orchestra are in heaven or more players are in hell? Well, <laughs> I, I have a favorite story that I tell, and it's, it's about tuba, tuba auditions. Now, the, wor- the, tuba world is, the tuba world is incredible. I mean, there's incredible players all over the place that can play that instrument to a level that's astounding. So you have a tuba audition for your orchestra, and all these tubas show up. And when they finish playing, you pick the third best guy there, not the first best guy. Because if you pick the first best tuba player, the most startling technical musical He's going to be he's going to be bored silly playing whole notes along with the basses huh. and uh, playing watermelons and uh, he's thinking he should be a soloist he should be out there playing Bach cello suites and horn concertos on his tuba and so on and so if he if he's joining the orchestra he's going to be a big negative influence sitting there thinking I should you know I'm way above this job and these notes. Now the second guy, he's he's going to be a little better with that. He's going to be happy to have the job and so on. But the third guy, he's going to be in heaven. He gets to play his tuba in an orchestra, in a good orchestra. He can hang around with the stage crew guys. He can <laughs> fix his car out back of the auditorium and and just be one of the guys and just be a regular guy. He doesn't have to be a soloist. He's just happy to play his tuba in a, in a, in a great orchestra. And I, I think that's, we've reached the point where people, that our techniques and our abilities exceed the demands of the job. If you're playing in a section somewhere and it's not very demanding and it's not very challenging, sure, there's a big chance of being boring. I mean, I think 60 years ago or 50 years ago, this wasn't the case. These music schools all over are, putting out wonderful players, you know, with with the dream of being able to make a living playing in an orchestra. And uh, it's just not possible, especially now with the pandemic and, and orchestras shutting down and and struggling. And uh, Yeah, it's tough. Wow. There's a, I don't know if you know the tuba, tubist with the uh, Boston Symphony, Mike Roylance, um, who's a great, great tuba player and, and a wonderful person. And I heard an interview with him where he said, when he auditioned for the Boston Symphony, and this was before he had children, but he was married, I think. Um, it was going really well, and then he turned the page to the next piece, which was the uh, Meister Singer excerpt, tuba excerpt. And just before he started to play, he thought, the future of my unborn child depends on how I play this piece. <laughs> <laughs> and he still won the audition. And, and he, I think he has three children now, so... <laughs> so there's a, there's a great player where everything went, went well at the same time. Well, David, do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to say? <laughs> I must say, truly, that my life has been blessed. That from a, coming from this little town in in California and having these opportunities, these doors opened for me, and being able to survive those challenges that were put before me. And come out at the other end now, after all these years, and realizing what a wonderful opportunity and career I had. And I, I, I just, I couldn't be more 
blessed by these opportunities and my life the way it came down. And, and now I'm uh, 22 years after actually retiring. I'm 84 now. And looking back, again, thinking it's too bad not everybody can have these wonderful opportunities to, to drop into the Chicago Symphony when you're only 21 or 22 and begin right then to play at this level that was demanded then. I guess that's what I have to say at this point. Well, you sure have given to an awful lot of people through your playing and teaching. That's for sure. It's been a great life.